Welcome to our weekly Catechism class. This lesson is a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help us to learn Christian doctrine with a warm and a practical application. Every lesson has an accompanying study guide. The web link to find that guide is in the episode notes. Now, let's start the class and learn the lessons. Welcome once again to our Catechism class. For a few weeks now we've been looking at Lord's Day 16 in the Heidelberg Catechism and so far we've made some general observations about how death is regarded and how it is dealt with in modern society how we tend to bury it away and sanitize it. And we contrasted that with the biblical teachings on death. In the second episode on Lord's Day 16, we learned that Jesus' death changes everything, that it was necessary for Christ to suffer death because God is just and holy, and judicial satisfaction for our sins at the bar of God's judgment can only ever be made in no other way than through the death of Christ, God's sinless Son. But how do we know that Jesus really died on the cross? After all, the Muslims claim that he merely swooned and was later resuscitated and was taken away to live and marry and have children elsewhere. But we know that Jesus died because he was laid in the tomb, and we looked at other certain proofs of his death. Let's move on now to think about how we as Christian believers face the inevitable, the end of this physical life, and the certainty that one day we will die. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. Paul's writing his letter to the Christians at Philippi. He is already thinking about the end of his life. He's in prison. He's been arrested in Jerusalem in the temple grounds and he's been falsely accused. He has been brought before a series of courts and tribunals and when Festus, the governor of Judea, suggested remanding him for a fourth trial at Jerusalem, he appealed to Caesar and was brought to Rome for that appeal to be heard. As he wrote his Philippian letter, he's awaiting the outcome of his actions. He's wondering, perhaps, how will his appeal to Caesar go? The emperor of Rome at that time was a man called Nero. Nero had started well, but he had degenerated into a ruthless tyrant. Caesar had the right to decide whether Paul would live or die. So Paul writes to the believers in Philippi, about his situation. It's worth reading. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, 
are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of good will. Verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labour. Yet what I shall choose I would not, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Humanly speaking, Paul's situation is not terribly hopeful, and he's well aware of that, as we can see from his words to Timothy in Second Timothy 4 and verse 68. He writes there, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. Perhaps he anticipates that the appeal to Caesar is going to go against him and that he will die. And how does that affect his state of mind? And what are his alternatives? Basically, he will either live or he will die. If he lives, he will live for Christ. He will remain to be a blessing and a benefit for others. But if he dies, that will be gain for him. So he writes in Philippians 4 and verse 24, Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you for your furtherance and joy of faith. Paul doesn't seem to be in the least perturbed or upset by any of this. If you look closely at the text of your Bible, you may see that in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, the word is there is in italics. Now that's a device used by the translators to show you that the word is not in the Greek text, that it has been inserted to make that sentence more readable in English, to make grammatical sense in our language. Let's read the sentence as Paul may have intended it to be read. Here it is. For me to live, Christ, to die, gain. Some commentators secret significance in that. Some would say that Paul has just lost the run of himself and is in eager anticipation of heaven, and so his normal, careful, well-educated Greek has deteriorated just a little. But others disagree. Some think that Paul is using this grammatical construction deliberately and for a very good reason. He is strongly making the point. He is excitedly making a statement for anyone who will listen. Say it like a declaration instead of a sentence. And note how powerful it sounds. For me to live, Christ. For me to die, gain. Either way, Paul is totally content that God is in control and that he has Paul's life in his Hands.
every single day of Paul's life is lived for Jesus. And that means in this context, living in the service of others. But what does it mean to live for Christ? Let's turn to the Catechism now for help. Let's look at question 43. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? And the answer is that by his power, our old man is with him crucified, slain and buried, so that the evil lusts of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. I am crucified with Christ. My old nature has been crucified, slain and buried, because Jesus took it as his own, and it died in him on the cross. How does this affect us daily? What's the practical application for us? For to be totally realistic, if our old sinful nature has indeed been crucified with Christ, why then do we still sin? Trying to understand that dichotomy has led to all sorts of errors concerning the sanctification of the believer. When Luther spoke about this, he called it simul justus et peccator, that we are simultaneously saints and sinners. In Romans chapter 7 and verse 24, Paul laments this, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. In Galatians 5 and 16 to 17, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfil the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Now that's it. We're sinners, and the tendency to sin remains within us all throughout our earthly lives. The difference with the Christian is that when we sin, we utterly loathe that sin. We're appalled by it. We're repelled by it. We turn away from it. We heartily repent of it before the Lord. Sin no longer governs our lives as it did in our unregenerate days. So the Catechist helps us to understand that sin no longer reigns within Paul and within every believer. And thus he and we can offer ourselves as a sacrifice of thankful praise to God. So sin no longer has dominion over us. Paul uses the analogy of death to show us how our enslavement to sin has been broken. Listen to his words in Romans chapter 6 verse 68. He writes, We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Romans 6 and 11 So 
you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul's argument here is obvious. People who are dead can no longer do anything. People who are dead can't tell lies. They can't steal. They can't commit adultery. They can no longer murder. They can no longer covet the things that are their neighbours. They're dead. Back in my early teenage years, a friend challenged me to walk through Bangor Abbey graveyard at midnight. Teenage bravado prevailed and I accepted the challenge on one condition, that he would do it too. So on the appointed night, I met him at the gate to the abbey and we found that he had brought with him a large German shepherd dog just for safety. I have to say, I wondered at the time what use the dog would be against an army of zombies, but then it was just a comfort to have it around. So off we went into the graveyard, and at that same time some of the graves there had been untended for many years, and some had sunken quite a considerable distance. So we're round the back of the church, in the darkest part of the cemetery, and were off the walkway when my friend took a forward step and went straight into a sunken grave. Now he only went down a foot or so, but it was enough to terrify him, and he and the dog both took to their heels and ran up the Newtonards Road in Bangor and probably never stopped running until they arrived home. To be fair, I was right behind them. Honestly, though, we had nothing to fear. The bodies in that cemetery no longer experience the desire to lie, steal or murder. And Paul uses this as an illustration. And he argues that we have been made dead to sin and alive to Christ. It's something that has already happened. It happened at the cross. It affects and changes entirely our status, our standing before God. And our response to that is seen in Romans 6 and 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Sin has been dethroned in our lives and we're set free now to serve God out of a sense of gratitude for his mercy and his forgiveness. Here's a paraphrase of Paul's words in Romans 6 and 1 to 7. And shall we then go on to sin that grace may more abound? Great God, forbid that such a thought should in our breasts be found. With Christ the Lord we died to sin, with him to life we raise, to life which now begun on earth is perfect in the skies. Too long enthralled to Satan's sway, we now are slaves no more, for Christ hath vanquished death and sin, our freedom to restore. Let's go back to the Apostle Paul for a moment. Because now set free from sin's authority over him, Paul can offer himself to Christ. His whole life is about Jesus. For me to live is Christ. What about you and me? What's the central focus of my life? What's it all about? When I lie on my, my deathbed, will I be sorrowful that I didn't make the promotion and progress in my career that I'd hoped for? That my grand dreams and visions remain unfulfilled? 
that I will no longer see the sunset or play any more golf or take any more foreign holidays? Is the purpose of this life simply to shop until you drop? Is its purpose to impress the neighbours? Can we really say that, like Paul, for me to live is Christ? All of life for the Christian is Christocentric. It is centred and focused on Jesus. To live a Christ-centred life is to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow him. You see, the Christian life is not about material riches or prosperity or success. For Paul, the Christian life led to beatings and lashes and arrests and possibly a death sentence. And yet here's Paul again in Philippians 3 and verse 7, saying, What things were gained to me, I counted those loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Our whole lives are to be a sacrifice of worship to Jesus. Romans 12 and 1 I appeal to you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Think about that for a moment. We are holy and we are acceptable. Just think about that. Contrast that standing before God with your pre-conversion status when we were filthy and condemned and unacceptable sinners. Because our human sinful nature has died in Christ, our status before God has completely changed. And yet we are to offer ourselves to him. It's a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Our instructor observes this to be an act of thanksgiving to God, not an act of atonement in some vain hope to earn salvation. That's really important to understand. Paul calls this offering of ourselves our spiritual worship. Worship is always a response to what God has done in Christ for us. Because our sinful flesh has died in Christ, we offer that flesh. We offer our bodies and our sinful nature now cleansed by his precious blood to him out of gratitude for what he has done for us. All of this is generally known as sanctification. The Westminster Shorter Catechism in question 35 asks what is sanctification and the answer is that sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die on to sin and live unto righteousness.
as long as we're in this life. That process of sanctification is only made possible because of the cross of Christ. Christ. 